me and changing you. Uh, That song is not just a song to be sung, but it's actually a prayer that could be offered on our behalf to God for what we want him to do in our hearts as we open up God's word together. So we're going to continue our summer in the Psalms theme as we uh, look at yet another psalm. This is going to be a little bit of a different psalm, uh, different in the fact that normally we've been looking at psalms that have been written by um, one of Israel's kings. Who, Who wrote most of the psalms in the pages of Scripture? David wrote most of the psalms. Anybody have any ideas of who might have written others? Who else might have written Psalms in the Psalms that we have in the middle of our Bible? Moses wrote some Psalms, yep. That's not who we're looking at this morning. Solomon did write a couple, yep. Asaph. Asaph wrote some psalms. In fact, he wrote um, about 13 of them. We're going to look at one of Asaph's psalms this morning. But let me start off by asking you this question. And maybe it was today. I don't know how your day's gone so far. But have you ever had one of those days when everything seems to go wrong? You're like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why are things going the way they're going? You started your day off right. You spent time in prayer. You spent time reading God's word. And you've uh, been meditating on the things of God. And, and you just don't understand why things just can't get going. And why you can't uh, see God doing what you'd like to see him do in your life. Everything is going wrong. You know, it's kind of like the New York Yankees right now. Everything is going wrong. They can't win again. They can't even buy a win. They can't, maybe they need to take some lessons from Houston. I don't know. But anyway, um, you know, we're just trying to figure out what's going on. That's, have you ever had a day like that where you're just trying to figure out why, why is life the way it is? I can't get things right. I can't understand it. God, what are you doing? And to make matters worse, you look around and everybody else is just fine. Life is just peachy for them. Um, take, for example, the New York Mets. They can't lose a game very, well, very often. They're winning like crazy. Um, and, and they're just trying to figure out, what are they doing right that we're not doing? And you know, you just scratch your head. How? Why? You don't understand. You're looking around in the office and your day is terrible, but everybody else, is, it's going great for them. They got news, hey, they got a promotion today, or they got a raise today, or, you know, we're going to move your office from down to the dungeon upstairs where it's nice, sunshiny, light office, uh, windows all over the place, and you just say, why them and why not me? You can't figure it out. Life is just difficult for you on that day or on the moment. Um, And to make matters worse, these guys around you that everything seems to be going right, don't even know the Lord, don't want anything to do with him, but it's just going great for them. Well, that's kind of where Asaph is when he writes this psalm this morning, Psalm 73. We've, we've all been in that kind of a situation in our life where you just wonder, maybe if I went back to bed and started over, things might be better. Um, Probably not going to change the situation, though. So anyway, what does Asaph do? Well, first of all, let me tell you who this Asaph character is. Um, He is a worship, he's the choral director, if you will, for King David. Now, if we were to use today's vernacular, we might call him the worship pastor, okay? He's the one who led the Israelites in worship, in song. He, he, he didn't just lead them in song, though, but sometimes he wrote songs and psalms for the people of Israel to sing. Um, he, was a, he, he was kind of a kindred spirit with David because they were both musicians. They both loved music. They both loved songs. And so God used Asaph to challenge the people of Israel with Scripture in his days. And we've had the privilege and the blessing of being able to read some of his psalms down through the years. As I said, he wrote 13 psalms altogether. 
Starting in verse, or Psalm 73, the next 11 psalms were all written by this man named Asaph, along with a couple of other ones. So this psalm that Asaph wrote here in Psalm 73 is what we would call a wisdom psalm. It's also a psalm that you and I can readily identify with. Um, I like the intro to this psalm that Alan Ross writes in his commentary on the book of Psalms. He says this, In this wisdom psalm, Asaph took a, told of the doubts which nearly overwhelmed him when he compared the life of a worldly man with his own. Have you ever been there? But then he confessed the sinfulness of his thoughts and explained that the contrast in their destinies enabled him to keep a proper perspective. That perspective is that God is in control and his children need to let him take care of whatever happened, whatever appears to be injustices in life. Wow, what a great way to set the tone for this psalm. So as we get into Psalm 73, let's take a moment to look to the Lord in prayer. We're not going to read every verse in this psalm together like we normally do because it is a rather long, long psalm and we would probably eat up some of the time that we need to have as we look into the specifics of this psalm. So let's ask God to bless our time together in prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for the psalms. Lord, we often run to the Psalms because we can identify with them. Uh, Many of them were written by King David who had struggles, who had difficulties, and yet loved you and loved you well uh, throughout most of his life. And yet there were times in his life when he was far from you, and yet you still loved him and you drew him back to, to yourself. Father, we're thankful for that testimony. We're thankful for this man, Asaph, uh, known as the choir director of Israel. So we ask that as we look at this psalm from this uh, musician, that you would bless our hearts, that we would identify with him, that we would understand the truths that he spoke, not because they were truths from him, but because they are truths from you that are applicable for us today. Bless our time in, in the study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this psalm breaks down into six sections. Now, I, asked, I said to my wife uh, when she was getting ready to drop the, my notes into the bulletin on the back side, I said, you're probably going to hate me for this psalm um, for this, because there's so many blanks there, and you're probably thinking, oh, man, look at one, two, three, four, five, six. Let me divide that by the number. We're going to be here all afternoon. No, don't worry about it. I do want Paula to get her money's worth, though. So anyway, um, but listen, This psalm that we're looking at this morning is so practical for us. It's so uh, readily applicable in the day in which we live. It breaks down into six sections. You say, well, Pastor, you got a lot more than six notes on there. But you see, that's why there's, there's six bold numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six Roman numerals. Okay, that's the six sections that we're going to look at. And each one of those sections is a declaration Okay, Um, I love that word declaration because it brings authority with it. It brings like, hey, this is where I am. I'm standing here and nobody's going to move me from this position. Like, you know, like the Declaration of Independence, right? We told the British, no more rule by redcoats. You redcoats, get out of here. We're not going to put up with you guys anymore. We're saying, here is our declaration. We're going to trust God because of who he is. And this is what our God is like. Okay, so the declarations that we find here are either talking about the nature of our our great God or our relationship with him and our walk with him. I declare I'm going to be like this or do this or let this be true of me in my life. First of all, in verse one, the psalmist writes this, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. This is a declaration of God's tenderheartedness, if you will. Now that word tenderhearted, it's not a word that we use a lot anymore, but I can't remember my grandma talking about being tender-hearted, okay? Um, she, she just, that's just the way she was, okay? She never got upset. She, she just loved the Lord. She loved other people. She always prayed for people, and she always wanted what was best for them, okay? And so she, I would say she had a tender heart, Okay? She was concerned about what was going on in the lives of others. Um, and, and so we see here that God has a tender heart, according to verse 1. Now, when we think of being tender-hearted, we think of someone who is, is good to all. Kind of like my grandma. She used to make doll clothes to sell. And she would set a price on the doll clothes. I'm not sure why. Because if somebody came to her booth at one of the craft fairs and they didn't have enough money to buy the doll clothes, she'd give them away. 
No, 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 you have them. You, you, you just you let your daughter be blessed by them. That was the way she was. Okay? Good to anybody that came across her path. This word tenderhearted is a word that, as I said, my grandma used when she, was, when she described, when it says she's good to everyone. Grandma Boyer was just good to everyone. Um, Asaph uses it and he says, God is good to all. And God wants to be good to all. Now, please don't misunderstand that that, for that to mean that God doesn't hate sin or that God won't judge sin. Because he will. He has to. That's who he is. It's part of his nature. It's part of his character. Okay? But that doesn't interrupt his goodness to them. God is good to all. This Hebrew word, tenderhearted, is a word. It's tob, okay? T-O-B. It's translated good in the widest sense Okay, Some, it could be talking about something that is good or a good thing. It could be talking about a good man or a good woman. It can also be talking about someone or something that is beautiful. It's the best or it's better than something else. It's bountiful. It's cheerful. It's at ease. It brings favor to somebody or it is in favor of someone or something. It's fine. Okay, uh, that word fine can be had as a broad application, doesn't it? Okay, well, that's just fine. How are you doing this morning? Fine. Doesn't mean you're doing perfect. Doesn't mean you're doing great. It means you're doing fine. But in some cases, that's a fine piece of jewelry. It, that's it's really good. You can't get any better. It's fine. Okay, um, it, glad brings gladness to your heart. Joyful, kindly, kindness, loving. Mary, as in M-E-R-R-Y, pleasant, precious, not as in precious when you look at a newborn baby that's not very cute, and you say, oh, isn't that precious? It's precious as in, wow, this is, this is great. I, I really like that. Precious, sweet, well-favored. As I said, it's, it's good in the widest sense. Okay, um, and that's what this word tender-hearted means. You see here, we see that God says, uh, the psalmist says, God is good to his people Israel. Now, I want you to understand this. There is no doubt in Asaph's mind, neither should there be doubt in our mind, that God is good to Israel. You say, Pastor, even today? Yep, even today. How can that be? Look at Israel, look what's going on. Because you know why? God is working in the midst of Israel to draw those people back to himself. That's always what is best for anyone, to be drawn to the one true God. God wants what is best for his people. Asaph may have even been going over some of the good things that God has done in the past for Israel. Acts like 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. God's goodness reigned supreme in the land of Israel. As we see here, David was going through the goodness of God. And, and he said, look at me, I'm nothing. But look at what God has done for me. He took me from being a shepherd boy to make me the king of Israel. He has blessed this nation of Israel. We were once a nation in bondage, and now we're not in bondage. In fact, we are the most powerful nation in the world. God is good to us. 2 Samuel chapter 8, David reminds us uh, that he could do such great things because of God's goodness to not himself, David, but to Israel. And remember, Asaph is the one who is putting to song the things that are going on in the nation of Israel. So he's very much aware of what's going on in David's life when he's talking about these things in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 2 Samuel chapter 8, where he recounts the goodness of God to the nation of Israel. Asaph goes on in in verse 1, and he said, God is good to the pure in heart. Those whose heart is clean is the way Asaph said. David knew what it meant to not have a clean heart, and he reflected that, and Asaph picked that up, and he reminded the people of Israel that God is good to those who have a clean heart. You may remember a few weeks ago our study in Psalm 51 and how David was reminded what it takes to have a clean heart. Let me read that for you, the reminder. David says in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, your tenderheartedness, if you will. 
According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David wasn't saying, hey, make it so I never sinned. He knew that sin had consequences, but he didn't want those, that sin to interfere with his relationship with God. Blot out that which blocks my relationship with you. Make it new. Make it clean. Make it fresh. Blot it out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. David says, for I acknowledge my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, David wanted God to clean him. He wanted to be clean so he could understand and recognize the goodness of God, the tenderheartedness of God, God's work in his life. God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's the declaration of God's tenderheartedness. Our God is tenderhearted. David now makes a declaration about temptation in verses 2 through 14. And I love this passage of the psalm because Asaph is completely honest in this passage of Scripture, in this section of the psalm. He, he just puts it all out there for God to read, God to see and understand. Now, something you and I can probably identify with, these things that, David, that Asaph is going to list, um, have you ever wondered why sinners prosper? Have you ever wondered why sinners don't seem to get what they should get? God, how's that fair? God, why don't you do this or that to them because they don't love you. They don't want anything to do with you. This is where Asaph is at this point as he's writing this psalm. He's looking around and he's seeing things that he doesn't like. Because good things at least appear to be happening to those around him who despise the things of the Lord. The next several verses here describe life as unfair from Asaph's perspective. Have you ever thought about that? Man, that's just not fair. That's not fair. You know what? Fairness shouldn't really come into the picture when we look at the life that God has called us to. I was talking to somebody earlier in the week, and, and she was reminding me um, that you know sometimes we get focused on what we think is our rights. It's my right. I should be able to have this. I should be able to do this. Well, I, and I, I said to her, and she agreed with me, you know what, sometimes, or well, we give up our rights at the foot of the cross. We give those rights to God and let him do what he wants. Maybe he blesses us. Maybe he allows us to enjoy those rights for a season. Sometimes he might take them away from us. But we shouldn't hold God hostage because of our rights. I deserve this. I want this. God should be mine. No. We have to trust God for what God wants to unfold in our lives. Asaph was tempted to fall and tempted to give in to sinful thoughts and possibly even question God's justice in this process. He does a series of evaluations and if we're not careful, we could fall into the same thought process as Asaph, especially in the world in which we live today. When we look around, we say, well, that's not fair to the church. That's not fair to Christians. That's not fair to me at work. So let's examine Asaph's evaluations and see if there's something that we can learn from his examinations. First of all, we see in verses 2 and 3 that Asaph embarks on self-examination. Self-examination. And, and, and we see here that, that Asaph is, is honest again. He wants to make sure that he's speaking truth to God because after all, God knows all things. When we talk to God in prayer, we can't say things that are not necessarily true or they're half true because God knows. God knows what the truth is and he knows what our hearts are like. He says here in verse 2 of Psalm 73, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph is saying that he's on a slippery slope. So, you know what happens on slippery slopes, right? In fact, um, it's raining pretty good outside right now. If you were to run out the, the handicapped door there at the end of the church building and start running down towards the bonfire pit, you would be on a slippery slope, especially once you get close to the spot where the, the pipe is that takes all the water from the roof out into the retention pond. It gets very slippery out there. You could fall down, you could get hurt. He's on a slippery slope. 
Asaph realized that he was on dangerous ground. It's important to know that the road ahead is dangerous. Living here in central New York, we're kind of familiar with some of these signs here. Go ahead, Timothy. We're not looking forward to seeing these signs have a significant meaning at, at this point in the, in the calendar year, but we've all seen these signs, right? Bridge freezes before the road. And then even on a day like today, slippery road. My wife gets a little uh, anxious when I put the cruise on and it's raining. She read an article somewhere that says if you have the cruise on, you can more easily hydroplane. Slippery roads. It's nice to know that the road could be slippery, especially in the winter when the ice is... Uh, I remember when we first lived here in Preble way back uh, in 1988... I think it was. Um, we were coming to a, a, a 3M meeting. I don't know if there's anybody left in the church. A men's morning meditation is what we called it. When the church was over here on the corner, and I decided I was going to take the, sh- the shortcut, you know, go down Stager Road, um, and there wasn't anything coming, so I didn't really slow down. So I, I took that road off the side, and I hit a patch of black ice. And the truck started to do this, and this, and this, and I'm trying to do all the, the things that I know how to do. I mean, I'm not a stranger to uh, winter weather, uh, but I was first time I had, had a truck, okay? And you know what it is with a truck? Very light in the back end. So I did what I thought I was the right thing to do, and sure enough, uh, I, I, I turned the wheel, tapped on the gas, and the truck starts to come around, get nice and straight, but guess what? It didn't stop. It kept right on and going. And so now the next thing I know, I'm going backwards down the road. No control, can't do anything about it. And I'm thinking, oh no, the brand new truck, we've only had it for a few months, what are we going to do? And we, I went off the road and stopped, you know those cement markers there that they have in the fields to show who owns what property? I stopped about that far from one of those cement markers. And I, and I look up and I said, thank you God. And as I look up, Bill Sears is going by. He took the same shortcut. He looks at me, stops, he says, get in, we'll go have that 3M and then we'll come get the truck out afterwards. God was in control, but it would have, you know, and the thing about black ice, you can't tell it's there. It didn't look like the road was wet, it didn't look like it was dangerous, but sure enough, off the road, almost wrecked the truck. Would have been nice to know that it was slippery roads. In South Africa, we see this rock or this sign a lot. Um, and you see it around here too, but when we saw it in South Africa, we're talking about big rocks that fall, okay, massive rock. One time there's this uh, Sir Lowry's Pass, beautiful mountain pass that you can drive over, um, and it's right on the ocean, it's right on the backside of Table Mountain, you take it from uh, Cape Town to uh, Simon, Siemensburg, and it was closed for a long time because they couldn't stop the rocks from falling. So they closed the mountain pass and everybody complained, but it was for our own good, for our safety. This Asaph wants us to understand, listen, I'm on a slippery slope and maybe you're there too. Maybe you're beginning to doubt. Maybe you're beginning to question. Maybe you're not sure what God is doing in your life. What is Asaph's advice? Trust God. Trust the Lord. You and I need to be aware that we're on dangerous ground and God has equipped us with all the warning devices that we need. To be aware of this kind of danger. You say, well, pastor, what are those warning devices? Well, he's given us a conscience, right? When you're about ready to do something, you have this, in the cartoons depicted as an angel on one shoulder and Satan on the other shoulder, right? And the conscience is battling, do I do it? Do I not do it? Should I? Shouldn't I? Well, God's word gives us the, in, the, the input that we need to consider. He's given us a conscience. He's given us the word of God. And you know what else he's given to us? We talked about this in our men's meeting yesterday. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune Godhead. What a blessing it is for us to know the Spirit is part of God's warning system for us. The Spirit convicts, the Spirit chides, the Spirit directs as we listen to what the Spirit is doing and how He's working in our hearts. So when we're on a slippery slope, we must consult the Word of God. We must let our conscience be governed by God's Word, and we must look for the Holy Spirit to give us guidance and to give us direction. Now let me
let me be quick to say that the Holy Spirit is not going to give you any information, anything that is contrary to the Word of God, because that would be contrary to the character of God. If the Holy Spirit leads you and directs you, He's always going to lead you based on what the Scriptures teach us. So in this self-evaluation, the first thing is we need to realize where we are, and sometimes we're on a very slippery slope. We also have to understand that sometimes we deal with selfish envy in our lives, Selfish envy. Envy always gets us into trouble, especially when we desire the things that the wicked have. Envy is never a good thing, but when we're jealous about what the unbeliever has or the sinful people around us have, oh, watch out. Watch out. I think Asaph was feeling a lot like Habakkuk felt. Um, In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 13, Habakkuk says this, Oh, Lord. And Habakkuk's, He's not necessarily in the right frame of mind either. He's very upset with what's going on in Israel at the time of his writing his book. Sometime read the book of Habakkuk, it's an amazing book. But in chapter 1 he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Well, can I tell you, tell you this? God always hears. He might not always answer at the moment you cry out to him, but he always hears. So Habakkuk had that kind of a little bit off in his, his theology. How long shall I cry and you do not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous. Therefore perverse judgments proceed. You are purer of eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue and when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why, God, why? I don't understand. That was Habakkuk's cry. That's Asaph's cry. Why, God, are things are bad things happening to good people? It's not fair. It's not fair. Habakkuk and Asaph were alike in that they could not understand why the sinful seemed to get away without any punishment or all, at all. And we might think that in our life today. Why is it that the sinful are going unpunished? God, why don't you change our situation? I don't know the mind of God in that matter, but I will tell you this. There is something God wants us to learn in the process. And we need to trust him through that situation that might seem like it's unfair. Here's our mindset. This is what our response should be when we think that, when we're on that slippery slope and we're beginning to question the wisdom of God. Here's here's the response. It doesn't matter to me. I just need to let God take care of that. I need to make sure my relationship with the Lord is right and then I can confidently leave the rest up to God. You know why? Because God always does what is right, and he always does what is best for his children. Selfish envy oftentimes gets us into trouble. So the rest of this section here in verses 4 through 12, we see a somber evaluation. As Asaph looks around, this is what he sees or perceives to be true about the wicked. He, he, He took his observations a step further, and he tried to wrap his mind around how well off the wicked are. He says this, The wicked have a blessed existence in verses 4 and 5. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. It seems to me Asaph is saying that they are blessed. Everything's going fine with them. In verses 6 and 7, his complaint is that they have a bountiful life. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They've got everything they want, God. Why do you let this happen? Then he begins to see a little bit of reality in verses 11 or 8 through 11, where he talks about their blasphemous tongue. He says, They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Now, just kind of think about what he's saying here and see if it kind of sounds familiar. Let me go back. Verse 8. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They sound really good when they talk. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues walk through the earth. They don't want anything to do with the things of God. 
Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained upon them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? You see, they're blasphemous. They're doubting the very nature and the very character of God. They're, they're, they're actually discrediting God for who he is. They didn't care about God or his ways or even his name. And then we read in verse 12, the bitter summary. Asaph summarizes his evaluation with the sentiment, it's just not fair. Shouldn't be this way. So as he looks out around and he makes these observations, he says they have a blessed existence, they have a bountiful life, and they have blasphemous tongues. And, they have a, and then he shares his bitter summary. And if you focus there, if you stay there, guess what's going to happen? You're going to become bitter and perplexed and unhappy with life. Asaph teaches us an important lesson here. We need to realize temptation and take steps to avoid sinning. Temptation is only sin when we give in to it. You know, Jesus was tempted... He said, in fact, Scripture says he was tempted at all points like as we are, yet he was without sin. So if you're tempted and you don't give in to that temptation, don't consider yourself to be guilty of sinning in that temptation, but ask God to deliver you from the temptation, to deliver you from the wickedness. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So you might be thinking, Pastor, what's the, what's the temptation here? What's the sin? What's the, uh, well, to believe these things. That's the temptation. Asaph was tempted to believe that the wicked have a blessed existence, that they have a bountiful life, that they have a blasphemous tongue, and that it's going to go on without any accountability to the one true God. This evaluation is not accurate. In fact, if we're honest about this evaluation, and Asaph is going to be honest about the, the, the evaluation he's going to come to the conclusion that, okay, God, I was wrong. My life is so much better than their life. And at the end of the day, Asaph is going to say, I don't want their life. I don't want to trade mine for theirs. I don't want what they have and give up what I have. These are lies, the fact that you can have a blessed life apart from God. The fact that you can have a bountiful life apart from God. These are lies that Satan puts forth in hopes that you and I and Asaph would believe. But we must not give in to the temptation of Satan and believe his lies. Asaph continues and he begins to focus on what he knows is the truth. What is, what is the best way, in fact, the only way to be delivered from temptation? Truth. How is Jesus, what did Jesus say to Satan? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For you and I, that's this book right here. When you and I face temptation, our answer, the solution to our temptation is right here in this book. There is nothing better, there is nothing greater, there is nothing more powerful to deliver us from temptation than the word of God. First of all, we see a declaration of truthfulness in the next three verses, verses 15 through 17. And Asaph's admission was that he was close to being untrue to his generation of the children of Israel. He's saying, I almost believed the lie. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until, you love this part, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Wow, what a powerful passage of scripture. Asaph's admission, I was close to giving in. I was close to listening to the lies that Satan had brought my way. But instead, he checked his thoughts and his attitude by getting a fresh perspective on God and the way that God works in the lives of his children. 
If you and I, when we're struggling, what do we do when we're struggling? We need to look to God. We need to get a fresh perspective on who our God is. Our God is not some weak, mamby-pamby God. Our God is the all-powerful creator of the universe, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. Our God is the one true God. There is none like him. And so when we find ourselves in the situation where we look around ourselves and say, it's just not fair. Admit that we're being tempted by Satan and look to God because God is so much better, so much more powerful. God is at work in your life and look for how he's working there. We see then here in the text Asaph's agony. When he stopped to think about how well off the unbelievers were, it caused him great pain. You see, the problem that Asaph was experiencing at this point was that he had gotten his eyes off his great God and was looking on other things. When we begin to focus on how well off the others are around us, that's only because our eyes are not on God. Our eyes are not on the one true God. Why didn't God sort that out with so-and-so? When we get our eyes off God and on other things, we're close to behavior that is not pleasing to the Lord. And that's where Asaph is as he's writing this. And God convicted his heart through the work of the Holy Spirit and helped him understand, hey, I need to stop focusing on things and start focusing on God and in his word. That's the solution when we have difficulties in life. When we get our, life, our eyes off God and put them on other things, life begins to fall apart on us and it falls apart in a hurry. Here's Asaph's answer. I love it. I already said it when I was reading it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. What was it that gave Asaph a right perspective on life? The fact that he went into the sanctuary of God. He went to worship with others. He, if you want to paraphrase it into the New Testament vernacular, he did not forsake the assembling of himself together. He went into the sanctuary of God. Can we, over, can we overstate the importance of fellowshipping together with God's people? No. You can't. And I've said it before. It's not because I want to have 100 people or 200 people in our worship center. That's not what it's about. When you come into the house of the Lord... And it doesn't matter what service it's in. When you come into the house of the Lord, you are being obedient to God and you are being an encouragement to others. Everyone who sees you sitting where you normally sit or sometimes where you don't normally sit, everyone who sees you here, they are encouraged by your presence in the house of God. You learn, you encourage, you are equipped to go out and answer the life, the the situations that you find yourself in in everyday life. Asaph said, until I went to the sanctuary of God, I was discouraged, I was defeated, I was focusing on the wrong things. But when I got into the sanctuary of God, I, I got a fresh perspective on life. When he got alone with God and he understood the wicked were going to be dealt with and that God would hold them accountable, in fact, their end was destruction because of their rejection of God, Asaph says, oh, I could worship. Oh, I could enjoy the presence of believers and the presence of God. Being reminded of their end and their destruction, it didn't bring him comfort. And it shouldn't bring us comfort when we know that somebody's going to um, face the wrath of God. But what it does bring, it brings joy to our hearts because it helps us be rightly related to the one true God. Asaph says, being in the house of God sorted out my problems. Well, that moves him on to a declaration. You might say, well, how how does he move to the next declaration then? A declaration of torment. But you see, when Asaph sees what God has planned for those who reject him, Asaph understands that God is indeed in control. First of all, Asaph notices their treacherous path in verse 18. He says this, Surely you set them on a slippery place, or set them in slippery places. Okay, They have a treacherous path. 
And they also have a troublesome outcome. He goes on to say, you have cast them down to destruction. And it doesn't stop there. He says, they have a terrifying end. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They were utterly consumed with terrors. They have a terrifying end that is awaiting them. If an individual continues to reject God, continue to say, there is no God. Uh, the, the Bible is useless. The Bible is an old, outdated book. Yeah, we sang about ancient words this morning, didn't we? But what was the second part of that? Ancient words, ever true. Changing you and changing me and changing you. These ancient words that are in the pages of Scripture, they are just as relevant, just as true today as they've ever been. Because they come from the mouth and the heart and the mind of God. So they were at they had a terrifying end. Anyone who rejects the truth of God's word and the truth of God will face total devastation. Total devastation. David says they will be utterly consumed with terror. That's trouble. You don't want to be on God's naughty list. You want to confess. You want to repent. You want to be right with God. You see, being reminded of their end and destruction did not bring comfort or joy to Asaph, but it reminded him that true joy comes when you are rightly related to the Lord. When you confess and you repent and you turn to God and you understand all that is now yours as a result of the relationship you have with God through Jesus Christ, wow! What joy, what hope, what comfort. You see, just like Habakkuk, Asaph came to the conclusion that the best thing to do is to let God be God. Let God be in control. God is just. He will always do what is right. Abraham knew this truth about God. Remember when God sent messengers to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham sat up and paid attention because he had a nephew who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, oh, but God... You are a righteous God. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. You shall not judge all, you shall not, the judge of all the earth, do right. Yes, God does right. He always does what is right. And so Abraham says, let me trust God to do what is right. Habakkuk said, God, I love it. I'm going to get up in my watchtower and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to watch what you do and I'm going to see how you do what is right. Asaph is going to tell us, I'm going to let God be God and I'm going to let God do what God knows he needs to do. I don't have to come up with a plan to fix it. Because God's already got the plan. And that leads him to, verses 21 through 24, a declaration of thankfulness. Asaph compared his situation with that of the wicked. Not a simple surface comparison, but a genuine comparison. And what a difference. What a difference between the child of God and the unbeliever. First of all, we see Asaph's grieving. At first, his heart was grieved because he realized the error of his ways. When we realize that we have doubted God, we've been at a point where we're questioning God and wondering, God, what are you doing? It should bring a grief to our heart. This word grieve, it means, to, it means pungent, okay? Um, a few things that came to mind when I thought of this word pungent. Um, Limburger cheese. Limburger cheese. Boy, does that stuff stink. We were up in Messino last weekend, and um, my uncle got married later on in life when I was in college. And um, we did some things to his car the, the night they got married, okay? Uh, I didn't do the things in the car. I, I just knew they were going to be done. I was too busy climbing up on the gazebo, the, the, the cupola of the church, so I could dump a whole bag of rice on them as they walked out of the, after they got married. Um, so somebody else had, had hooked up a... Um, uh, a, a thing when you turned the car and started the car it was gonna, supposed to go and make all kinds of noise. Uh, that didn't work. But somebody else placed a block of Limburger cheese on their manifold. Yeah, you're shaking your head because that's not nice. It stinks. It smells. I have used Limburger cheese to go fishing though. They say it works really well. Um, we didn't have much success so we just threw it in the fire and pff, that was a mistake. 
Limburger cheese really smells. It's pungent. Asaph, he was grieving because he realized how pungent his error was before God, how sinful it was. But then he rejoiced because of his position through God's grace, because he knew that if he confessed his sin, God would forgive him of his sins and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And that leads him to growth. We see Asaph's growth in verses 21 through 24. He says, I am continually with you. He realized that the way of the wicked was not better. It's not good. It's bad. In fact, it was far better to trust in the Lord and allow the Lord to shepherd your heart. Maybe he had read or sung David's Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. My cup runs. Asaph knew that when you walk with God, you're going to grow in your relationship with God. You're going to be with God and God is going to be with you when we let God shepherd our hearts. And then he asked God for guidance. We see his plea for guidance here. As Asaph's repentance becomes reality in his life, he understands that God will do amazing things and and better things in his life than what the wicked appear to be blessed with. He makes this conclusion about God's guidance. He says, you, God, hold my hand. I've shared with you about my wife. When we get out of the car, she often grabs a hold of my arm. Um, Not so much because she has bad knees anymore, but sometimes there's other aches and pains, and sometimes there's just, hey, I can can grab that arm. I don't have to worry about slipping in the snow or on the ice or when it's wet and rainy outside. Asaph says to God, you hold my hand. God reaches down and he grabs us by the hand, and he pulls us up out of the mire and the muck, and he puts our feet on solid ground. And we're not going to be in a place where we slip because of our lack of trust in the one true God. He says, you always guide me. If I'm going someplace I've never been before, Barb says, you want me to go with you? Well, that would be a good thing. Because she and I both know that I'm not the map person in our family. Okay, I, yes, I can take my, my, and I'm so thankful for these things. Um, and by the way, I use iMaps. But, uh, and I have, a, I have this nice little um, thing that I can stick my phone on. It charges my phone while I'm driving down the road. And it also, I can open my maps and it'll tell me step by step where I'm supposed to go. So if my wife's not in the car, Siri's telling me what to do. Okay? Um, guides my path. Guides my way. But you know what? We have a better guide. We have a guide in our great God who knows everywhere we need to go. He knows everywhere we've been. He knows what we need to do. He is our faithful guide. And then Asaph says, you will receive me into glory. Contrary to the wicked, whose end is destruction, Asaph's end and ours, those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, our end is being received into glory into the very presence of God. You know, I like that verse in 1 John chapter 3, I will be like him when I see him as he is. Oh, what a day that's going to be. Being confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When I see Jesus face to face, his work in me will be done. Hallelujah. You will receive me into glory. Well, he closes off the psalm with one last declaration, and that's a declaration of trust. As the psalm closes, we see Asaph has come full circle from doubting the goodness of God to seeing God as his hope and strength. Look at verse 25. Asaph says this, There is no one on earth or heaven that I desire more than you. You know what this is? This is surrendered craving. Asaph is saying, I want you, God. I want you more than anyone or anything else. There's nothing in this world that I desire more than you. In verses 26 to 27, we see that Asaph's confidence has returned. His source of confidence is not in what he sees around him, 
but he says, my, human, my humanity fails me. In other words, my observations of the wicked put me in a wrong spot. But you, God, are my strength and my hope. We have a great hope, and that hope is in the one true God. You, God, are my strength and hope. Any who are far from you will be destroyed. What is Asaph saying? He's saying, I want to stay close to my Lord forever. I want to be walking side by side with the one true God all the days of my life, and then I'll continue that journey when I get to glory. And then in verse verse 28, we see Asaph's steadfast commitment. He says, it was good for me to draw near to you. Why was it good? Because he was doubting the goodness of God. When, you're, when you begin to doubt the goodness of God, the, the fact that God is sovereign and in control of all things, what do you need to do? You need to draw near to God. Scripture teaches us if we draw near to God, he will do what? He will draw near to us. And don't get confused with that statement. God hasn't moved. If we're far from God, it's not because God went away from us. It's because we went away from God. So when the scripture says draw near to God, it means we need to repent. We need to turn around from what we, where we were and draw near, get closer to God. Through the reading of scripture, through prayer, through fellowship, we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. David or Asaph also says, I have put my trust in the Lord God. No better place to put your trust than in the one true God. That I may, what? Declare that I may speak, that I may shout out loud, that I may make, that I may publish all over the place your works. Now, Asaph's works were a little different than our works. In fact, they were just a little less complete than the works that we get to declare about God because Asaph didn't get to declare about the cross and about salvation and about the promise of everlasting life if one believes in the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. We do. So when we declare the works of God, we're telling others about the relationship we have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. <coughs> what we have here is a definition of commitment from Asaph. When we are committed, we are close to what we're committed to. We're near to what we're committed to. We're convicted about what we are committed to. We're going we're gonna to stay with that no matter what. And we're going to communicate that to others. We're going to tell others about our great God. You see, this psalm is both a challenge and an encouragement to us because we see that we can move from a doubter to being one who is committed and a disciple of the one true God. What moves us from doubt to commitment? Well, in this psalm, it explains it all well for us. A better understanding of what God is and who God is. The fact that I am his child and that he cares for me. And the reminder that I am to trust God with all that I have and all that I am. So I hope this morning as we've looked at this passage of scripture, this psalm, Psalm 73, this wisdom psalm, that God has encouraged us to move into a closer, more endearing relationship with him and committed to the great God that has called us to be part of his family and to serve him with all we've got. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for Asaph and the psalm that you laid upon his heart to communicate to us. Down through the ages, this psalm has been a challenge to those who follow after the ways of God. This morning, I pray for each one who is here. I ask that you would help each one of us who know you as our Savior, that our commitment will be fresh and strong and true to you, that we want to be close to you, that we want to be uh, so very, very near to you and follow your ways. Father, I also pray for any that might be here this morning that do not know Jesus as their Savior. Perhaps there's, there's a couple who have never put their faith and trust in the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. They need to talk to somebody about that today. Pray that you would work in their heart and bring them to a place where they would say, yes, I would like to talk to you. I would like to talk to uh, somebody about knowing Jesus as my Savior. I've never done that before, and I need to do that today. Father, we know that your Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, accomplishing what you need to accomplish in our lives, so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.